It's family service, and so whenever it's a family service, we try to make it as accessible as possible. The idea being, please, we plead with people, invite others along to the service so that we can speak of Christ to them. And that's very much what I want to do this morning as we look at these few verses in Romans chapter 4. These last few verses, verse 22 to 25. Let me just read them again. This is why his faith, that's Abraham's faith, was, quote, it's quoting from the Old Testament, credit to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, that's God the Father, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Wednesday night, at church night over the last quite a few weeks now, uh, we've been looking at... I'm sure that Abraham, of course, is referred to many, many times through Scripture, not just Old Testament, but New Testament as well. And most often when he's referred to, the reason he's being referred to is because of his faith. It talks of the faith of Abraham. He's famous above all else for that, that he was a man of faith. But what we might miss as we come to the reference to him here in Romans 4 is why Paul is speaking about the faith of Abraham. He's not doing it just so that we recognize that this man who lived a long time ago had faith. He's not even doing it so that we would say, wow, he was a great man. Let's put Abraham up on some sort of pedestal. You know, he's an eminent man, a man of faith. No, he's doing it because he's saying what was said of Abraham's faith is equally being said of our faith today if we're Christians. He said it wasn't just about him, it's about us today. Now, if we're going to get anywhere understanding what Good Friday and Easter Day are all about, we have to start here. My problem is my sin. Look at verse 25. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, who was delivered up for our trespasses. In other words, when Jesus Christ was delivered up for crucifixion, that's what he's talking about, God the Father causing him, directing him, bringing it about that Jesus Christ should go and be crucified, he says he did that because of our trespasses. In other words, there was no problem with Jesus. There was no reason in Jesus why he had to die. The reason was ours. It was our trespasses. Now the first problem when I say something like that, of course, is we all interpret that according to our preconceived ideas as to what trespasses and sins are. I remember speaking to a young lady many years ago. Um, uh, we were in conversation. I think she brought the conversation up. Sue and I were there. We were, we were at their house um, as to what we believed as Christians. And I, I think I must have said in the course of it, because we've all sinned, and she was mightily offended. Um, and I understood why when I understood what she thought a sinner was. To her, it was someone who committed murder or rape or, at the very least, been stealing from shops and that. She got this narrow view of sinners, much like the Pharisees had in their days. Now, when God says that he was delivered up for our transgressions, for our trespasses, for our sins, he is not accusing us all of being murderers and rapists or anything else. What he's accusing us of is actually something worse than that, although we don't see it that way. 
He's accusing us of being people who live in his world that he's created as his guests, but without any reference to him, without any desire to please him, to glorify him. We just say, this is my life and I'll do with it what I want. That is the very heart of sin. It's that rebellious nature in us that says, I'm not interested in pleasing God, I'm interested in pleasing me. I'm not interested in what God wants, I'm interested in what I want. With no reference to the fact that I'm only here because he's allowed me to be here. And I'm enjoying all that he's provided for me. Now what we don't grasp is how serious that is. If we could put together AIDS and cancer and redundancy and bankruptcy and every other evil that we can think of in this world and multiply them a thousand times over, that would be nothing compared with how terrible sin is. Now our problem is that we look at sin and we can't see any damage from it. We look at someone who's doing all those things wrong and someone who's not and we say, well, I can't actually see any difference. In fact, very often the person that's doing all those things wrong is in radiant health, um, got a massive great bank account and seems to be on top of the world. And we say, well, where's the damage? What we can't see is inside. What we can't see is what their heart's like. We can't see that they're dead spiritually and for all the damage that it does in this lifetime in terms of spoiled relationships with other people most especially a totally spoiled relationship with God that is nothing compared with what it does when we die because then scripture tells us we come before the God who made us and he will judge us and if we're still in our sin then he will have to punish us for our sin in an eternal hell No, my massive problem is my sin. Now that gives me a second problem. My second problem is my need to be justified. Justified means that justice has been satisfied as far as God is concerned. Somehow I need it that when God looks at me, he will not see this problem of my sin as standing against me. I need it somehow that when God looks at me, he says, Oh Dave, Although you are that terrible person, I don't see you like that anymore. Now, how's that going to happen? I am not righteous. I'm not in the right with God. I'm totally unrighteous. Look what it says, verse 22. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't righteous. He wasn't right, neither am I. If you could see the things wrong in my mind and my heart and my life, you would be disgusted. None of us is right. But, he says, something happened in order that God could, quote, count him as righteous. In other words, something happened so that God could look at him and say, although you're not righteous, I now view you as though you were. And that's what we need, isn't it? I need some way that me, sinful Dave... When God looks at me, he doesn't see me like that. Instead, he sees me, he counts me as being righteous in the right. And that's what justification is all about. That's when God does something that enables him to look at me and say, justice has been satisfied as far as you're concerned. The debt has been paid. My my anger, my holy wrath against the things you've done wrong has already been satisfied. So I've got nothing left to hold against you. 
You are now clean. You are now in the right in my sight. That's to be justified. And my great need is that there be a way whereby I can be justified. That God could look at me and say, I haven't got a single thing to hold against you, even though you've done so much wrong. Now, what does this tell us about Jesus Christ? What it tells us first is, his death was planned by God. Who was responsible for Jesus dying on the cross? Now, there's an interesting discussion you can have over your lunch today, isn't it? Who who do you hold responsible? I mean, was it the Romans who crucified him? Was it Pilate? Because Pilate said, I find no guilt in him, but still handed him over to be crucified. Was it Judas who betrayed him? Was it the Jews who were crying out, crucify him, crucify him? Who, who was actually responsible for Jesus dying? Well, look what it says here. Unquestionably, they all were responsible in their own particular way. There's no question of that. But look what Peter says in Acts 2.23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. In other words, Peter says, yeah, we know men were the instruments, we know men did it, we know their deeds were evil, we know their hearts were against him, but behind that was, what does he say, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples come to pray to God. They've just been told they mustn't preach about Jesus anymore. So they hold a prayer meeting. And they start off by praying to God. And this is what they pray, Acts 4.27. They say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So they itemize all the people that were there responsible for Jesus dying. And this is what they say to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. So so there are all these wicked, evil people planning it and carrying it out, but at the end of the day, all they achieved was what you planned and destined and purposed to happen. So who was responsible, above all else, God the Father? He sent Jesus Christ to earth to die on a cross. And this horrific event that happened that was all the result of evil men plotting evilly and breaking the law and bringing false testimony and everything else against him, all they actually achieved in the end was to do the very thing that God the Father insisted must happen. That Jesus Christ should die on a cross. And so he puts it here in verse 25, who was delivered up. He's talking of God the Father delivering up Jesus Christ to die. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ, who is himself God, is delivered up by God the Father to die. That's the first thing we have to grasp about Good Friday. You know, we can't, it's no good us saying, well, it was all Judas's fault. If it hadn't been for him, it wouldn't have happened. It had to happen. God the Father planned that it should happen. God the Father intended it should happen. God the Father maneuvered the whole of everything to that point where it would happen in order that Jesus Christ might die on the cross. So much so that Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 19 to 20, 
He's talking about how we're saved. And he says this. It was with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, it was planned before God ever started to make this world. But was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He says it was settled before God ever started to make this world that it would happen. And at the right moment in our history, Jesus Christ came and died. Because that was God's eternal plan and purpose. That it should be so. Now why on earth did God plan to do that before he ever started making the world? Answer, because he knew we'd have a problem of sin. And he knew that we'd have a need to be justified. He knew that if he was going to ever be able to bring any one of us into heaven, he would have to be the one to deal with our sin because we can't do it. He would have to be the one that would provide some way whereby he could look at us and say, I count you as being in the right, even though we're in the wrong. And so it can say, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Do you remember what the angel said uh, when they announced his birth on earth? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Yeah, he, he knows the problem of the sins of people. And the ones he's going to save, he will save them from their sins. He will provide a way whereby God can count them as righteous, even though they're not. There's only one man can say, Jesus took my place physically in his death. That was Barabbas, wasn't it? Do you remember? There was Barabbas. He'd been arrested. He'd been tried. He was found guilty. They're going to crucify him. And they've got this tradition that they can release one. It's the Passover. And they can set one free. They can allow one to go to escape his punishment. And Pilate, because he knows that Jesus is innocent and wants to release him, says to him, God, I know what. Um... Who would you like me to release to you? I can release to you Jesus, who's done nothing wrong, or this horrible Barabbas, thinking they're all going to say, release Jesus, and what do they all cry out? Release Barabbas. And Barabbas could go, and Barabbas could say, he died so that I didn't have to die. I hope he did say that. He died in my place, physically. Well, Jesus didn't die for us in that sense. We've still got to die physically. But he died for us spiritually. He died for us physically so that we don't have to die spiritually. He died for us physically so that after death we can live and live with God. And then see, finally, his resurrection proves that it worked. You say, okay, I've followed you so far. So my problem is my sin. I know I've done wrong. I mean, we're all honest enough to admit that, aren't we? I mean, I've not thought the way I should think from the moment I was born. I've not acted the way I should act. I've not spoken the way I should speak. My first thought every day hasn't been, how can I glorify God today? It's just not been my heartbeat. I'm sure we can all be honest enough to admit that. So we've got a problem. My problem is my sin. 
And my need is to be justified. I need some way that justice can be satisfied for me so that God can count me as righteous even though I'm not. So that God can look at me and say, Dave Hall, your life is a mess. You've done terrible things, but I don't hold any of that against you now because my justice has been satisfied somewhere else. And the only other place it can be satisfied is in the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. Because what the Bible tells us is that when he died on the cross, he took in his body the Father's punishment for the sins of all those who will put their trust in him. So that if I will come and bow the knee and put my trust in Christ, then the Father has punished in Jesus on the cross my sin completely. To the point that he could cry out, It is finished! I've won! I've done it! I've paid the debt so that I'm justified and God can say I count you as righteous even though you're not but how do we know it worked how do we know that God the Father was actually satisfied how do we know that he does actually justify those who trust in Christ how do we know that he does count them as righteous where's the evidence I mean we live in a scientific age don't we and everybody demands where's, where's the proof it's amazing the things they believe that for which there is no proof, but that's their claim. Where's the proof? Well, here's the proof. Christ rose again. Do you see it there? And was raised for our justification. That's what we need, justification. We need to be justified. And he says that's what he was raised for. He was raised for our justification. Well, how does that work? Because the Bible makes clear justification is actually achieved through his death. He died that justice might be satisfied. So how does Paul now say he was raised that we can be justified? Well, his point is this. His resurrection proves that his death worked. In other words, if he hadn't risen again, we would know his death didn't pay for our justification. So the proof that the justification was there in his death is the fact that he rose again. Does that make sense? Let me put it like this. Anybody could have come along saying, I tell you what, I'm going to die. And when I die, that will buy your justification. When I die, God will be satisfied with my death in your place. And he will count you as righteous if you trust in me. Anyone could have come and said that, couldn't they? And they could have then gone on and died. If they didn't come back to life again, it didn't work. And when Jesus Christ came along and said, if I die, when I die, I will die so that you can be justified. When I die, you will be counted righteous if you put your faith and trust in me. If he did not rise from the dead again, it didn't work. But, if he came back to life again, that was the proof that God accepted what he'd done. God looked at his death and said, that satisfies my needs. Rise! And death couldn't hold him. For it had no claim on him. Because he was innocent and he was perfect and every word he'd spoken was the truth. And there is justice in his death for those who will trust in him. And so on the third day he rose again. It proves everything about him. It proves that he was the one he claimed to be, the Son of God. No one else can bring themselves back to life after three days in a tomb, dead. It proved that all that he said was true. 
It proved that God took his death as complete payment for everyone who puts their trust in him. It proves that he's defeated death. My friends, we've all still got to die. Hasn't happened to any of us yet, at least. I don't think so, unless in the last minute or two someone's expired. We've still got to face death. But what a difference it makes knowing that Jesus has already gone through it and come out the other side. Victor. In his resurrection is our resurrection if we're in him. When he rose, he didn't just secure his resurrection, he secured the resurrection of each and every one whose trust and hope is in him. He is the first fruits of all those who will follow in his wake. Oh, my friends, what a glorious Easter Sunday celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rightly do we say, he has risen indeed. Everything hinges on that because Christ has risen in this black world in which we live. There is an absolute, certain, guaranteed hope for everyone who will bow the knee and put their trust in Christ. They will not be disappointed. There is salvation in no other name under heaven other than Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth and the life. Oh, my friends, do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? Not just as an historical figure. Do you know him personally as your Lord and Savior and King? So you can go through the rest of this life worshiping him, enjoying him, and you can face death. And you can say to death, come on, make my day. The day you strike me is the day I will go to be with my King forever. Is that how it is for you this morning? I pray it is, for Jesus' sake. Okay, we're going to sing, see what a morning, gloriously bright.